Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Wherever you look, workers are going on strike and our schools are no exception, even though Jeremy Hunt managed to find an extra few billion behind the Treasury couch for schools at his recent autumn statement. What's going on here? Why are union leaders still balloting for strikes? And what's the state of English schools after 12 years of Tory-led government? To get the lowdown on all things educational, I caught up with my Centre for Policy Studies colleague Mark Lehane, our Head of Education. Mark's no ordinary policy wonk though. He's worked as a teacher, including as a head teacher, and set up his own free school, as well as working in the heart of government as a special advisor. What he doesn't know about English education over the last few years really isn't worth knowing. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, It's a pretty fevered sort of time to be involved in British education, the National Education Union are balloting for strikes, as in so many uh, public services at the moment. There's a huge amount to talk to, talk about here. We're also kind of 12 years into a Conservative government that in its first uh, incarnation really made education a very important part of their kind of reforming package. So we want to talk about what's going on right now in terms of um, English schools, I think I should say, because there are separate education systems but also the kind of broader picture of where we're going as a country. And just for our listeners' benefit, those who don't have the pleasure of working with you on a day-to-day basis, um, what's your own background in terms of education? So I'm, uh, so I was a teacher and a head teacher for 15 years, but when I graduated, I, I, the one thing I knew was that I didn't want to be a teacher. Yeah. Um, my, my dad was a secondary school teacher for his in, in, in one school for his entire career. His mum had been a primary school teacher and the one thing I knew that I didn't want to do was be a teacher. And yet after a couple of years of working in um, retail banking uh, in the city, I had to kind of accept and come out to myself. Actually, I really wanted to be a teacher. So um, I started my teacher training 20 years ago. And actually, I was so lucky to go into teaching when I did because there has been so much exciting stuff going on in the last 20 years and so much progress has been made. Um, by governments of all flavours and, and, and all kinds of schools over that time. So, so yes, I was a teacher and a head teacher. And then um, I was lucky enough to open um, a brand new school in 2012, one of these free schools uh, in Bedford, where I've lived since t- uh, 2002. And I was a head teacher there for five years. And that was an incredible privilege, an awful lot of fun. And we did a pretty good job. And then 2017, I moved into a lot of policy uh, and ran a few campaign groups. 
And then a year ago, I became a special advisor in the Department for Education, and that was amazing. I mean, maybe we'll talk a little bit about government and policy in yeah. our chat, but that was so exciting. Uh, and then with the changes that happened this autumn, I was no longer a special advisor. And fortunately, I've landed here at Centre for Policy Studies. In what is undoubtedly your best job today. Oh, clear, this is this is a job I've spent my whole life preparing for. Exactly. Yeah. Same here, same here. Um, tell us a bit about setting up a free school then. Was that a, you know, was it how easy did the government make that process, given it was one of their own kind of flagship policies? I think what's really interesting when I reflect um, what it was like trying to open a school back in 2010 compared to how the process works now is... Um, Genuinely, the the ministers, the civil service officials, and those of us on the front line trying to open the schools, we were all making up as we went along. And that's not to be critical of anybody. It's just that nobody had tried a policy like this before. Um, we knew that there were some other jurisdictions around the world that allowed sort of non-governmental organisations to set up and run schools, run state schools, uh, but we hadn't tried it in this country. So. Uh, there was a lot of improvisation. There was a there are a lot of um, hairy and scary moments along the way, but what is really impressive is how quickly the Department for Education and others involved in that learnt from that, those early days. Sort of dare I say, like the slightly wild west days. Um, there was quite a high risk for quite quite a high appetite for risk in those early days as well. They, they needed to be. What was really interesting was how quickly they learned from what worked, what maybe wasn't such a good idea, and the process very quickly became very slick, uh, very well supported, and actually very evidence-driven in terms of uh, the Department for Education and the New Schools Network got to know along the way um, what kind of groups were more likely to succeed, what kinds of schools or policy ideas were less likely to work and, and therefore to avoid. And nowadays, um, I think, in fact, last week, the latest uh, application window for free schools closed. If you were to look at the supporting paperwork and um, advice around that, it's a really smooth process now. Now, it's still hard to open a school, but yeah. compared to 10, 12 years ago, it's come on so far. Well, that's kind of as it should be, isn't it? Like, it shouldn't just be, you shouldn't be able to clip your fingers. No, school, like, it should be hard to open a school because yeah. you are given a really precious task to educate young children, to keep them safe first and foremost, and then to educate them. But... Um, the way they designed the process and the policy in the early days, they deliberately built in the feedback loops. They deliberately built in ways to learn what was going well and what wasn't going well. Um, and not all government policy, and like I say, this having worked inside government now, not all government policy has that built into it to the extent that the free school policy did. Yeah, let's zoom out a little bit. So you started, as you said, you um, trained, you did your teacher training 20 years ago. What do you think have in the overall most significant changes in the way that we educate children in uh, it's England and Wales, right? So it's yes. one education system. So, um, well, of course, actually, education is a, is a devolved thing now to all four nations. So okay, Wales, sorry, so it's yeah, England, no, no. England only. That's, That's right, no, but what, so taking a step back, actually, what's really interesting is we've now got four very different school systems in the four nations um, of the United Kingdom. So over time, we're going to really get a good idea about which of those systems are performing better or not so well, and, and maybe why that is. So the biggest changes that we've seen in the last 20 years, and, and, and it's not just about what the Conservative-led governments have done since 2010. Um, there was a lot of experimentation reform going on under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Um, and indeed, Tony Blair and Lord Adonis, when they were sort of uh, pushing the academies programme in the early days, they were really building on the reforms of the previous Conservative governments around city technology colleges and grant-maintained schools. They were amongst the first state-funded 
but independently run. the Baker reform. The Baker, the, yeah, the, the 90s. late 80s. At some, if anyone yeah. ever wants to hear me ramble on for about an hour about the importance of the 1988 Education Reform Act, I'm very happy to do it. We are still living we'll, we'll in that pencil world. pencil in another episode. Exactly. Yeah. But um, in terms of big changes, what the way I try and describe it to people as to why we've seen so much change, and in particular since 2010, is nearly every one of the important factors or variables of our education system around schools has been reformed. One of the problems with reform programmes historically is people tinker with one particular strand and they don't consider how that strand um, interacts with other important bits of that system or indeed how the unreformed bits of the system impact on the reform bit. What Michael Gove kicked off and and, uh, his ministerial team and his successors as Education Secretary have done, they've literally reformed and tried to do the reforms based on evidence every one of the what we call the control factors of the education system so um if to people listening you know whether that is the how we inspect schools the way we hold schools accountable the way we fund schools the way schools are governed the governance set up the legal entities underpinning them um what kids are actually taught Mm. how we teach them how we train teachers how we develop teachers once they're in the profession, um, how we assess children along the way, the exams that they sit, every single one of those factors and more have been quite carefully reformed. Not all of those reforms have been successful. Some of them haven't worked out. But overall, I would argue the median child in an English school now is getting a much better deal than they were 12 years ago. Um, Now, there's still lots to do. And, And in fact, I would argue the biggest focus now uh, in terms of changing things, actually isn't schools themselves, it's the services and support around the school ecosystem. Yeah, well, that brings us on. So you wrote a piece this week for um, CapEx, which mentions this. Um, schools were given a fairly generous funding settlement in the autumn statement, which, again, you had written a piece on, very presciently written a piece on the day before um, the autumn statement. Um, and yet teachers are still, or the unions, I should say, I shouldn't conflate all teachers with the unions, but the unions are still balloting um, for teachers to go on strike. I mean, does this make sense, given that big funding settlement that you mentioned? So first and foremost, like the right to strike is a human right. It's a really integral right. One of my earliest memories as a kid was being taken with the rest of my family by my dad to see the tree in Tollpuddle, where the Tollpuddle martyrs assembled. Okay, And in my first school, I was a trade union representative. Actually, and I really enjoyed that role. Um, so the right strike is really important. The, the concern I've got right now is like things are really tight and really tough for the whole country. Well, they are for the whole world, actually. We've had a really tough few years and now we're going through this cost of living inflationary uh, crisis. Everyone is feeling the pinch. It's not just teachers. It's not just those other people that work in schools. Everyone's feeling the pinch. And yet, somehow, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, managed to find uh, an extra £2.3 billion for schools for next year and for the year after. And that means, in real terms, the amount of money that um, schools will have per pupil will be back to, or even slightly above, where it was at the end of the New Labour era. And when you talk to those of us that were in schools in in the New Labour era, we we will sort of smile and reminisce about how we almost had too much money. Now, obviously, it wasn't quite like that, and not all schools were flush as flush with cash as others. But seriously, like the amount of per pupil money that was in the school system by the end of the Labour era was more than double what it was 
when Labour came into power. And this government have just confirmed we're going to get back to those levels of funding. So the amount of money in schools, I would argue, is pretty good. Now, it's not always where it needs to be. It doesn't always get to the children and the, and the teachers that need it most. But that's what the reforms of the system should, should help us get towards quicker. But I, like teachers are not badly paid. I know if you're at the top of the pay scale as a teacher, in real terms, it is less than it was 10 years ago because we obviously had the financial crash and then the pay freezes and so on. But relative to the average person in this country, and in particular compared to the families of the communities that we serve as teachers, Teachers are really well paid. I think the average head teacher salary is £70,000 a year. The average teacher, classroom teacher salary is about forty grand a year. That's mm. way above what the average person in the street earns. We're all feeling the pinch. And what I'd be saying to people if they're considering whether or not to vote to strike is, like, please think really hard. Like Those kids need to be in school more than ever now, given everything they've been through with COVID the last few years. The families you serve, they need to be able to get to work and hold things together at home. And if you go on strike, lots of them won't be able to go to work then, and that's going to affect their family incomes. I know they're frustrated. I get the frustration. But honestly, like we're all in this together, and we need to hold together to get through it. How much is about the disgruntlement is just about pay versus the kind of working conditions? Because it strikes me, as you say, if you look at the averages, teachers earn relatively well. But they also work really antisocial and quite long hours. So, so, so look, teaching is... Unbelievably important job, and um, I'm quite clear one day I'm going to go back into the school system if I can find a, a job where I can like do something good and add value. Um, it's in my blood, I can't escape it, and I'll go back to it. The, the average teacher, when they leave teaching, takes a pay cut of 10% or more. So that suggests, and a lot of other research shows, that pay is not the big concern for most teachers once they got through the first few years of their career. And actually, this government is bumping up the starting salary for new teachers to 30 grand within a year's time. So pay is not the big deal. When you talk to teachers about what gets them down, it is poor behaviour in the classroom. It is cantankerous and awkward parents. It is uh, annoying and unnecessary paperwork. It is fear of being... um, getting in trouble if their exam results aren't as good as their head teacher thinks it is, or it's fear of Ofsted. Those are not things to do with money. It's, it, like you said, it's working conditions. Yeah. And we can now see growing numbers of schools that have grappled with those things and made them a whole lot better. And of course, I'm a bit biased here, but if you went to see the staff at Bedford Free School, they're not worried about lots of things that other schools want about because they make sure that the kids behave, that teachers are supportive when there are problems, that the workload is manageable. And actually, when you drill into the things which really make even good schools stressed, it's a lot of the factors out of their control. It's like, I wanted to refer this child to a therapist or to the mental health service, uh, CAMH, um, uh, and we've just got a massive waiting list. I've got a child that can't cope in a mainstream school. They really need to go to a specialist provision. There's not the spaces. I'm worried about sending that child home at the end of the day because I don't think they're necessarily safe or that that family is a happy place to be. But I cannot get children's social care to take it seriously because they are underfunded and it's a really tricky system. So what we've got is a situation where because schools are so high profile and the unions are so effective, school funding is thankfully really, really high. But what we almost need now is the teaching unions to campaign on behalf of the other services that are needed to support kids so they can do better in school. I want enough that will probably do more for teacher well-being yeah. more money in schools. That kind of brings me quite neatly to my next question, which is about the link between funding and performance. I mean, how close is that relationship between 
education funding and exam results or PISA rankings? So. There's very, very little evidence at all. That, that there's very little correlation at all between how highly funded school systems are and how well they do. Yeah. And in fact, you can even see it within England. Um, in a year's time, English schools will finally be funded on what we call a national funding formula. So if you're a child of a particular age with a particular set of characteristics, you will finally get the same amount of money if you live in Bedford as if you live in Bradford. Right. right. In 2010, when the Conservatives came into power, the way schools were funded, not only were different local authorities given different amounts of money for their schools, like per pupil or per school, but schools within a locality would get very different amounts of money to run on. OK. And what was really interesting is if you were to look at outcomes uh, from schools, be it SATS results or GCSE results or whatever, and plot them against the amount of money per pupil that those schools got, there's next to no link whatsoever so money is important like if you don't have enough money it's really hard to do good stuff but beyond a certain level and i'd argue our school system as well beyond that level it's what you do with that money that's most important it's mindset not money that transforms outcomes so that leads me again leads as neatly onto the next one which is what what does make that difference we talk a lot about kind of culture and leadership is it is it sometimes to do with an individual, we talk about superheads a lot, I remember, um, or is it the kind of structure of schools? I mean, what, what's going on there in terms of performance? So, and the pupil intake as well obviously matters a lot. So, so listen, there is no doubt <clears throat> that the, the young people you work with are like the most important factor in terms of determining, unless you do something differently, how how highly that the exam results, like the outcomes for those pupils, okay? We know that... Uh, Sadly, all too often, um, your birth is your destiny, okay? Um, But we also know that there are a growing number of schools and most importantly, groups of schools that seem to be able to systematically take groups of kids that that might perform to to a particular level elsewhere and make them perform way better. And that's one of the really exciting things that we've seen in recent years and I think we'll see even more over the next decade is we can now see there are some groups of schools that are systematically able to help kids perform. And what do they look at? Well, you can make it really complicated, um, but uh, I like to think about how do you get great results in terms of A, B, C, D, E, right? So if you want a kid to do really well in their education, and remember, what's a great education? It just means they come out happy and smart. That's what you want from school, kids to be pretty happy, pretty smart. Obviously, you've got to keep them safe along the way. So they've got to attend school. They've got to have great attendance. They've got to behave really well or they're not going to be able to engage with the learning. Mm-hmm. You've then got to give them a really great curriculum so teach them good stuff. You've got to deliver it to them. You've got to teach it to them in an effective way. That's pedagogy. And then finally, you've got to prepare them for really great exams and other destinations like university or apprenticeships. Okay, so A, B, C, D, E. It's that simple. And the really high-performing groups of schools are just really systematic about making sure that as far as possible, every single child attends, behaves, gets a great curriculum, delivered well, and does good exams. And you can boil it down even simpler. What makes great schools? A great culture and a great curriculum. Honestly, it's that simple. It's not that simple to do. If it was that easy to do, everyone would be yeah, doing it. The headline's simple, but they're actually doing it. Yeah, simple. and like, so when you hear people like Catherine Burbleson talk about it, or Luke Sparks, who runs the Dixon's Group of Schools up in... Um, Leeds, Bradford and now Liverpool and Manchester or Martin Oliver who runs the Alton Grange group of schools or Dan Moynihan in London or uh, you know the Delta guys, Net, Inspiration Trust, Advantage Schools and so on and so on and so on. They 
they might explain it slightly differently, but they're talking about the same kind of thing. And the other thing they do is they really sweat the detail over what those processes look like and what that culture looks like. So where traditionally might have in schools just relied on kids to know how to behave or relied on kids knowing how to navigate their way around the school or relied on their parents knowing what's expected of them, all of these high-performing groups of schools are really explicit about teaching and instructing everyone about what is expected. And that's why sometimes it feels like it's a little bit controlling or a little bit strict. But actually, all they're doing is making their expectations really clear and then upholding them. And genuinely, that is the key to a successful school. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You mentioned parents there. I think this is often something that's slightly left out of the schooling debate. Um, you sort of look at government policies and so on and say, oh, they're doing this, that's why X is bad, without talking about the kind of broader environment a child is in. Has that relationship changed in your career so far? I mean, are schools interacting with parents in a different way? Are they expecting more of them than maybe they did in the past? That's a really good question. Um, So I left school myself in the mid-90s and started working in schools in 2002. And one of the things that struck me that had happened in those six years was, um, and, and of course I'm just basing this on a sample of one, which is my own experience. When we were at school, it's and listeners will know this is a cliche I'm about to say, like, but when we were at school, if we got in trouble, we get in trouble at school and then you get in trouble when you got home again. By the time I started teaching, there was a greater sense that we were accountable to parents, which is a good thing, but parents and sometimes their children felt that if if the child wasn't doing well, it was the school's fault, mm. as opposed to, and the parents didn't always see it as their job to back the school. So again, when I look at successful schools now, I don't think they're doing anything different to what great schools have always done, but they're being more explicit about it. So I don't think we do ask parents for more these days. What I do think we do maybe do a bit differently is we're more explicit about what we want from them. We expect you to get your child here on time. 
We yeah. expect you to make sure they've got food in their stomach and if they can't get them to breakfast club. We expect you to make sure that if they have a detention, you don't quibble with us about them doing a detention. You're going to back us up and support us. So I think, um, and, and, and some people say, oh, well, what about the difficult parents? Do you know what? And I always used to say this to my staff. Difficult parents are difficult because they care. Like I'd much rather a difficult parent that's difficult because they care. Than parents difficult didn't. in terms of interfering, maybe. Yeah, or they don't they care. Don't doing, or they're arguing the toss. Like, yeah. like when you talk to parents when they've got little kids, they, or every, they all want the best for their child. In fact, every parent wants the best for their child. Sometimes you get, and I've got four kids of my own. You know, it's not always easy to be a good parent. It's not always easy to do the right thing. Life can get you down. You've had a bad night's kip or you're worrying about work or something. But parents do care. They are on the same team. I, don't, I mean, there are a small, very small number of like pretty vicious, nasty parents out there. But the overwhelming majority of parents want the same thing as the school. And it's about trying to find that common ground as much as you can. And where you can't, ultimately saying to parents, well, this is how we do things here. You've got to back us. Or you might want to think about what your alternatives are. Yeah. You mentioned curriculum. And actually, we talked about sort of structures and funding and that kind of thing. There are often people in the papers and on the media saying, oh, we should teach X in school. So I don't know, we should teach climate change in school, which I was definitely taught in school anyway. So, um, But given you're a maths teacher, say, do you think there is, how important do you think it is to kind of update the curriculum constantly to reflect modernity? Or, or is it better to teach kids the basics that they can apply elsewhere? Thinking, for example, about something like financial education, people often say, let's make maths more relevant. Um, to the real world. Oh, so you've struck on a subject that's very close to my heart, which is, um, in fact, when I ran Parents and Teachers for Excellence uh, between 2017 and 2019, we used to track in the media all the news stories where someone said schools should teach X. Right. And, yes. um, and, then, and then we did a little report on it a couple of times a year just to update people. And um, whenever people want to add something to the curriculum, let's be honest, it's normally coming from a good place. Like they, they, they care about kids doing well and hence they think that children should learn about financial education or first aid or brushing their teeth or whatever it is but what I always just say to people is literally between the age of four and 16 kids only have about 12,000 hours in school okay once you've worked out the really core essential things that you want them to learn over that time you know once you've accounted for all the maths and English history geography RE art music drama sport and so on and something you want them to do there's not a lot of time left in that 12,000 hours to add, add extra stuff in there so what I say to people is, if you're proposing that schools should now teach X, first of all, check that they're not already teaching X, because Jeremy Corbyn used to regularly suggest that schools should teach X, and it was already in the national curriculum or in the exam specification. First of all, check it's not already being taught. But secondly, you've got to be clear, what do you think schools should not teach to make space for that thing you're so passionate about? And that's where most campaign groups and celebrities trip up, because they, they, they don't realise already how, how crammed the school curriculum is. You won't find many teachers sat around twiddling their thumbs going, God, God, I've got so much time with my class. How do I fill the time? Um, and again, sometimes people still have this out of date idea that, oh, well, you know, the last week of term, you're not doing much in school. You're just playing games. That really isn't true in schools now, if it ever, if it ever was. And yeah, you might get a bit of Christmas fun or a Christmas party in the last week of term before Christmas. Or you might have something on the last afternoon in the summer or whatever. But schools have got their foot to the floor pretty much all year round now. Mm. And what's on that broader kind of reform package that we mentioned at the, at the top of uh, the episode, there is a sense among some kind of conservative-leaning commentators that that has perhaps slowed down a bit. I mean, 
What do you make of that? Is there still a reforming zeal in the Department for Education or is it kind of time to consolidate the gains of the last decade or so? Where are we on that? Well, I think actually we've got both of those things. Um, as I said earlier, there have been a huge amount of changes, I would argue, for the better. Not everyone would agree and that's fine. But there's, there's been a huge amount of changes since 2010. So actually, for a lot of those reforms, we are in the embedding stage of the journey. Um, I mean, like literally every aspect of initial teacher training and then early years teacher development has been reformed in the last few years. And now they're rolling out and trying to embed what they call an early career framework. It sounds very dry and technical. It's hugely important. It's honestly, it's going to change how we support early early stage teachers, but also it's going to make them so much better prepared uh, for, the, for, for the classroom and so on. So I think those kind of things, we should give them space um, to roll out. In fact, one of the things I'm most proud of um, having achieved from working in the DfE with Nadeem Sahawi and the other ministers and my special advisors and so on. One of the things I'm most proud of was how many things we said no to, um, how many things weren't in the white paper that we published in March. Like Because we recognised there's a huge amount of work that's already been done and right now we need to give the sector the space to bed it in. And also, everyone's shattered. Like yeah. The whole country are a bit run down at the moment, aren't they, because of COVID and, uh, and now the cost of living stuff. And, you know, People will argue the toss about whether lockdowns and school closures and stuff are the right thing. But do you know what? Um, the school system stepped up to the plate in March 2020 and thereafter in what was a horrible, really difficult situation. And head teachers and school leaders in particular have just been flat out nonstop for two and a half years. They haven't really had holidays um, uh, and they haven't really complained about they've just their kids needed them to do it. So they've done it. So that's another reason I think why well, we don't need loads more reforming missionary zeal over the next yeah. few years. That said, I do think there are a couple of reforms that are really important to better support pupils and their schools and their teachers. And the big one for me is we need to keep moving more schools into great academy trusts, great groups of schools, not for some ideological you know, reason about getting them out of the hands of the council or anything like that. It's generally because we know that the schools that are most able to systematically support kids and systematically support their teachers are the schools that are in these great academy trusts where they pull their money, they pull their expertise, they pull their resources, and then they're just able to do a better job in those most important things. And I think that's worth investing in. The rest of it, we should leave the sector to embed and, uh, and get on with. What's interesting to me, just to finish off here, we're looking into the future a bit, Let's just say, for argument's sake, we have a different party in government in a few years' time. It strikes me that Labour have said very little about schools. There's been a bit of kind of playing to the gallery about private schools and you know, cutting, uh, getting rid of their charity status and this kind of thing. But on the kind of meat of the actual reforms, there hasn't been that much. I mean, do, how concerned are you that a future government might try to undo some of what has been done not just since 2010, but even by Labour themselves in the Adonis sort of period. Yeah, I mean, the Labour Party today is a lot more left-wing. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And it was under um, uh, Tony Blair when a lot of these reforms started. So I, I don't quite know what I expect to happen. On the one hand, we've definitely had a Magna Carta moment with our schools, right? The Academy Trust leaders the Sir Martins, the Hamid Patels, the Dan Moynihans, the Bex Boomer Clarks and so on that run these big groups of schools, they are not going to give up their ability to run their schools, the freedoms they've got lightly. So it's going to be difficult for Labour to roll those kinds of things back. But what is quite telling is when Labour is what Labour are saying about schools and what they aren't. They're talking about schools in terms of childcare, wraparound support to help parents get to work. They're talking about getting more teachers into the system. They're deliberately not saying what they would or wouldn't change about how we teach kids, the ABCDE I've talked about. And that's a very sensible political thing for them to do, because as soon as they start to fill that gap, people will agree or disagree with them. Um, but if I was a teacher, if I was a parent, of, particularly if I was a parent with young kids, so they, they're going to be in the school system for a while, I would want to know what Labour have got planned, because historically, Labour take their education policy from the teaching unions. And nearly all of the teaching unions are completely unreformed in their beliefs as to like what works in schools. When you listen to the NEU, the National Education Union, talk about what schools should do, it's like they're still in 2007. They still talk about all these wishy-washy things, which we just know didn't work under Labour, even though we had loads of money. Uh, And we know what does work better, a knowledge-rich curriculum, stricter behaviour and so on and so on. So my worry is Labour aren't saying much. Not because they don't know what they're going to do, but because they can, as usual, outsource policy to the teaching unions. And that really would be retrograde. Mm -hmm. Well, on that uh, rather pessimistic note, uh, I'll leave you, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us on your CapEx podcast debut. Uh, Thank you all at home, as ever, for listening. If you like the podcast, do give us a review on wherever it is you listen to it. And if you don't, you know, just don't say anything at all. Do tune in next time for another edition of the CapEx podcast. (laughs) 